all. Welcome back. Um, I wanted to hop on really quick before we start this episode and give a trigger warning and some context and also just a little bit of insight into what this episode is going to be. Um, We have a phenomenal guest, Ellie Coburn, with us, which is a really cool moment for me because I listened to her on the Chatty Broads podcast years ago. And this is a long episode. It has a lot of information, but it's so incredibly insightful. And Ellie has so much wonderful knowledge that she shares with us. So I would highly suggest sticking around. But as always, I want to give you guys trigger warnings so you can be prepared. So we talk about rape, pro-life propaganda, racism and inequity towards the BIPOC community, medically assisted suicide, adoption trauma, white saviorism, Christian supremacy, and religious trauma. A few of those things are by no means the center of this episode. We talk a lot about white saviorism and adoption trauma in this episode. So if those are triggering to you, maybe sit this one out. The rest of the triggers are uh, talked about very briefly, and we don't talk about anything in graphic detail. I would also suggest that if you are looking to deconstruct more around this topic and unlearn some of the white saviorism to look into the books that Ellie mentioned at the end of the episode, they are linked in the show description. Um, If you grew up in an evangelical environment, you have surely encountered white saviorism in the form of mission work or adoption. So this is something that a lot of us have to unpack. And um, it's something that doesn't get talked about nearly as often as it should. And um, I'm so happy that we have Ellie with us today to help us unpack it and help us unlearn it and help us become more mindful about how we approach adoption and how we approach Christian supremacy. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. It's a great one. Hi, all, and welcome back to Mindful Minds. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today, we're going to be talking about foster care and adoption with Ellie Coburn. How are you today? Hello, I am good. How are you doing? I'm good. So I came across Ellie um, actually in a Chatty Broads podcast episode. Um, And I haven't told you this yet, but you kind of single-handedly shifted my view of foster care and adoption and actually kind of opened it as a potential option for me in the future. I, I don't want birth kids. I've never wanted to give birth to children. Um, well, that's a lie. I have, but as an adult, I've realized that's not going to be a good fit. Um, and, uh, I had always kind of viewed fostering as a route to adoption. And so for me, it was like, well, I, that was traumatic for me as a child. And we'll get into the context of my background with foster care and adoption in a little bit, but it was a traumatic experience for me. And I was like, I don't really know if I want to go into that and deal with the grief And then hearing the way that you spoke about foster care and adoption and um, your perspective on it, like literally drastically changed my perspective. Um, And I remember calling my older sister, who was also a Chatty Broads listener, and I was like, oh my God, have you listened to the new episode about foster (laughs) care? Because like, you're going to die. And so it's super fun to have you on because I've been following you for quite a few years and um, we've been trying to make this work for a while too. So I'm glad we're finally like sitting down. (laughs) I know, as is it's crazy having kids, which is obviously an occupational hazard of this work. It makes <laughs> it very hard to, you know, synthesize. But I'm so excited because it's not all, you know, unfortunately, and not unfortunately, but just the reality is that I kind of get invited to spaces that aren't specifically about deconstruction slash, you know working through understanding how to do ethical foster care, ethical adoption. And sometimes I'm having to tweak a lot of my language. And so it's nice to be in a space where it's kind of pre-established that that's what we're working towards. And now talking, you know, 
it will now be more about like, okay, this is how I've done that. Whereas I feel like in a lot of cases in the right. work that I've done or the speeches I've done, half the work is just getting to the place of like, okay, now we understand why it's important to be ethical. And so it's, it's right. different. Right. Yeah, no, I think you're definitely coming into a space here where the the values and the ethics are set to an extent. And so I think a lot of a lot of the audience, which I've already told you, is a lot of people working towards just bettering themselves as adults and figuring out how to unlearn a lot of the shit that they learned, uh, especially in religious environments, and how to kind of retrain their brain. Um and I think that this is a topic that we a lot of people cover saviorism, a lot of people cover cover white saviorism. Uh, in religion and churches in life. But I think that how that extends to specifically foster care and adoption and not just mission work um, is a kind of a, a subset kind of topic that gets left behind a lot of the times. So for me, it's a personal topic. So I've, I'm so excited to talk about it. And I know for you, obviously, it's an incredibly personally top- personal topic. Um, but I want to give you a shot here to kind of explain a little bit of your story and your background and why your platform is so focused on adoption and foster care for those of, uh, for the people in the audience that maybe haven't heard you on other podcasts and don't know your story. Yeah, absolutely. So I, oh gosh, where to even begin at this point? I think that that's how so many of us feel that are on this like perpetual deconstruction journey that at some point it becomes like so much deconstruction that it's like, I don't even know where like the origin of it started. But um, originally, before any of that, I um, very stereotypically wanted to uh, help children. I was raised in evangelical Christianity. I lost my father at a young age. And um, that kind of pushed me further into the church, further into the culture that the church brings. And with that, I was um, kind of pipelined into mission work. Um, I was seen as a great fit for mission work. I was in a lot of ways groomed for mission work uh, through the church that I was working with at the time. And ultimately, um, although I've done my absolute best to scrub it from the internet, I did do several years of mission work um, in Zimbabwe, Uganda, Kenya, uh, Mexico, India, uh, etc. Now, interestingly enough, this work that I had done, uh, ultimately, a lot of it was independent. I was going there by myself. I was finding these like these places by myself. And then, yes, I was being funded by the church. But because I was there independently, and I was already starting my deconstruction process, I am grateful to report that I wasn't indoctrinating people the way that is so often the what comes with mission work, if that makes sense. But um, I was definitely walking the walk. I was doing all the things I was saying, all the things I was posting, all the problematic pictures. I was, um, you know, getting that donor money, so to speak. And that's a whole different podcast, really, honestly, like my experience there and how I came to realize that I did not believe in the work that I was doing and left very abruptly, left several projects that were funded, open-ended and came back to the States. Ultimately, when I came back to the States, um, I, remember feeling very much like, wow, the work that I was doing is fundamentally at odds with my ethos and with my values, but holy shit, I love working with children. And holy shit, I love working with children who unfortunately don't have the opportunities presented to them the way that so many other children um, just with more privilege and more access do have. And I, it honestly, it was a lot of this stuff 
I, I identify as agnostic contextually, but a lot of the stuff that has happened along the last five years has been, I would say, divine in its own way and has kind of forced me into a camp of spirituality that I would love to say I'm atheist or that I'm, you know, but there's been a lot of, I guess, divine intersectionality or what have you. But for whatever reason, and if I would have told you the story five years ago, I would have given all the credit to God. But for whatever reason, I had kind of this inkling, this heart calling, which is what you would see all over my Instagram if you go back far enough. Um, although I, again, done my best to cleanse it, but there's just some things that, you know, <laughs> you know, you've been there. Um, but some things stick around. <laughs> yeah, some things stick around. And the language too, like when you develop that language, Yes, I see you rolling your eyes. <laughs> I, I just, I just like made a slip on like maybe two podcasts ago where I said something like that was the most incredible evangelical language. And I was literally doing an episode about deconstruction. And I was like, yes. yeah, like, and I'm just like so blessed. And I was like, oh, oh like, sorry, like, let me, let me backtrack. <laughs> no, the language is so funny. I mean, I'll say all the time, like in this season, well, just not in this season. I'm like, can you just, just shut the fuck up? Like, there's no season. There's no season. Yep. I'm so, yep, yep, yep. But uh, yes, to give it, yeah, the evangelical version of that would be in that season. I was not informed. And so, but I became a foster parent, um, which again, was my quote unquote calling at the time. And I was basically told, and I was 21 at the time, which huge ethos conversation could get into that as well. Ultimately for context, people, a lot of times need context in that nature because they're like, how did you have money? How'd you have a house? How'd you have? So I had started doing professional photography when I was 18 and, um, it was very good to me financially. And it was something that I was able to kind of build up my own you know, independent self by the time that I was 20. So by 21, I had, you know, a home, I had a second bedroom that was empty, I had a business that was very reliable on the income. And so that kind of took care of all of those barriers. And then I, in my head was thinking, oh, well, foster care, you know, very rarely, especially in San Diego County, where I am fostering and where I have been fostering since the inception of my fostering journey, um, it's, it's very rare. We have a lot of reunification. Um, we have a lot of family members stepping forward to take care of their children, rather that be in other right. you know states or whatever. But so in my head, and I had actually been told this at the orientation, if you want to adopt ever, you need to plan five to 10 years, um, several ad- at this point, And we'll actually talk about this extensively, I think, um, based on what we had talked about before we hit record, but just talking yeah. about like the narrative in our mind of like fostering to adopt and everybody Mm -hmm. who is intersectional to Christianity in any capacity for the most part is going to have heard that term. You know, it's a hashtag. It's a very dominant term in evangelical Christianity, foster to adopt, you know, uh, so much so that it's kind of assumed that you're going to be able to say that and people will know what you mean. And then you're going to get the allocates for it. And so I had actually set forth in my journey with the intention to adopt, but I was told that that would take several years. So in my mind, I'm 21, several years go by, you know, I know I want my first kid before 30. And then as the universe would have it, my first placement, I've now had 14, but my first placement uh, came home at six weeks old. um, And 
two years later, I adopted him. He was home with me the entire time. He is now five years old in kindergarten. He is my son, Oliver. Um, and that was very unexpected. And honestly, in a lot of ways, for a while, Oliver is beautiful. He is healthy. He is uh, white, which matters a lot in the conversation that we're going to be having as well, because we're going to talk about interracial adoption and we're going to talk about just all of the tropes that adoption and foster care have. But with Oliver coming home and being what I would say the quintessential child, I was kind of like put in this position where I could either go, I, I could go one of two directions. I could go into the extreme of look what God has blessed me with and look at what you can do to, you know, and falsely lead people into the narrative that they too could have an Oliver, that they too could have this seemingly seamless adoption that was in the scheme of foster care, two years is actually no time at all. I mean, I know people that have right, been trying right. to adopt the same child for five years. You know, we had very little hiccups. We had a reasonable relationship with the biological family. We maintain a beautiful relationship with the biological family now to date, you know, so many things. And I could have easily said, you know, God bless me. Look at this child. Look at this as, you know, the poster child of run to become a foster to adoptive parent. But um, I knew that it was rare. I knew that it was the anomaly. And ironically, I also knew that I was weirdly like the one person that didn't want that, didn't set out for that per se. I knew that I could handle more. I knew that I could handle um, multiple reunifications. I knew that I was convicted in reunification, you know, first. And yet I, here I am with this child who was set for adoption and I had the opportunity and I am incredibly privileged to be Oliver's mother. Oliver is the light of my life. Um, but it was one of those things where I was at a, a real crossroads in terms of really delving into my Christianity or really kind of using a lot of the stuff that happened surrounding his adoption and subsequently his sister, which I'll talk about in just a second, um, coming home as a catalyst for even further deconstruction and then even further analysis of kind of like, what is even going on here? What do I believe? What do I think? So um, again, context, Oliver was born. Um, a year later, uh, Hazel, my daughter, my adopted daughter was born. Hazel and Oliver are not biologically related, but they have been raised as siblings uh, since they were literally, they're a year and 13 days apart. And they were raised, she came home at a day old. She was born on a Saturday. She came home on a Sunday morning. Oh my God. Yes. Holy cow. So um they're both August babies, you know, they really are, um, in a lot of ways they're like have been raised as twins. And then in a lot of ways he has a big, big brother persona over her, you know, they have a very big brother, little sister dynamic. Um, and she, her situation, um, and I, I talk very vaguely about my kids particulars, but, um, it very, very straightforward adoption again, easily could have been labeled as like the pinnacle of what every foster to adoptive perspective, you know, aspirant wants, you know, it was right. very straightforward, no familial involvement, um, two years to close. But most of those two years, we were very secure in our path towards adoption, um, again, very much that's what people think of and idealize and almost like pathologically dream of when they think of adoption Mm -hmm. through foster care. And I had these two placements, but then I also had 12 other, so 14 total, 12 other placements that were happening against the backdrop of their, um, of their adoptions. So I was fostering, 
pretty consistently three at a time. And I almost always had a child throughout the entire duration of the time that I was waiting for Oliver and Hazel's adoption to finalize. I almost always had a child with us that was reunification oriented. And it was actually through those cases and through those families um, that I focused my attention with Oliver and Hazel there was a lot of security in those cases and a lot of just kind of, this is what is happening. They are going to be adopted. There's not a lot of contesting of that. And so we were kind of just waiting down the days. And then with the other cases, there was a lot of velocity. There's a lot of action. There was a lot of visitations and back and forth and, you know, who is going to go with grandma and who's going to go. So I was more focused on them in terms of like the work I was doing as a foster parent where I was preparing more for like long-term motherhood with Oliver and Hazel. And so that, that, but it is very surprising to have, I mean, again, I know so many couples um, and I was doing this as a single, you know, woman, I know so many couples who were waiting years for a case like Oliver and Hazel to come across their, you know, fostering license opportunity. (laughs) Um, Right, right. (laughs) And so that was that had, you know, that had happened. And we went through the process. And I would say, um, here I was deconstructing from Christianity, I have always been queer, I've always been I mean, I've always been a lesbian, I've been a lesbian since I was um, a teenager, I didn't know I was a lesbian or identify as a lesbian until um, Probably 20, I'm 26 right now. And I would say 22 or 23 was the first time that I was like, I'm a lesbian. However, I've been hooking up with women since I was 12, you know? Um, So it's one of those things where I didn't want to sell, I guess, like attach myself to that label because deconstructing from Christianity you know, it can be a lot of things before it is like the worst thing. And in my mind, that was the worst thing. And so if I could be, you know, for a while, I toyed with bisexual for a while, I, you know, it was confused for a while, it was experimenting for boys, you know, in the earliest stages, it was just experimenting for boys. And then it was like the evolution of like, well, at least I can be bisexual, and I can just marry a man. And for so long, viewing my sexual sexuality through the lens of sin was a huge informant of what ultimately led to my deconstruction. And I know we're having this foster and adoption podcast, we're having this mashup, but, um, but my sexuality was actually a huge informant of, I think, pushing me away from marrying myself to the very easy narrative of look at Oliver and Hazel and the blessing that they are to me and, you know, and the beautiful life that we live. And now we're waiting for our husband. I knew by about 22, I could never in good conscience marry a man. And I, that was kind of, and I also knew I didn't want to be alone, you know? And I also knew that I am someone who, there's a lot of people and there's nothing wrong with being alone. It's a very valid single parenthood with the right resources and community is actually something that I advocate for extensively because I think it's been um, the nuclear family narrative has really overshadowed the reality that people can be raised perfectly fine. You know, my children were for the first uh, three, two and three years of their lives. Um, and so I'm not saying anything. It was just for me personally, I knew I wanted to be in a romantic relationship. And that was right. ultimately what prevented me from 
like I said, marrying myself to the adoptive mother that got everything that, you know, and I knew it was anti-intellectual. I knew it was, there was no integrity to that narrative, but I also knew that that narrative is very popular. It's very trendy. It's very, you know, it's very easy to go viral with that narrative. And I did several times. I mean, so much of your story, like mirrors, not in a deep lens, but if you're looking at it from a Christian perspective of trying to kind of pick your story and piece it into that narrative of, Oh, the, the, the single mother who got the children. Like, I remember when I first listened to the podcast episode, I was like, it reminded me so much of kisses from Katie. Oh and my that God. Book. And I was like, Oh my God. Like, and I, that was my dream. My dream, my dream was to be Katie as a child. I wanted to be her so bad. I was like, I'm going to go to another country. I'm going to adopt all of these little babies. I'm going to have like 12 children and I don't need a man. And then God will bless you with my husband. It'll be perfect. And as an adult, the more and more and more that I drifted from Christianity, the more you unpack that, the more you look at that and say, ooh. So interesting. Interesting is that when I was in my mission days, and this is actually piping hot tea to be naming someone by name, but when I was <laughs> in my mission days, I was, um, I, I worked in Jinja, Uganda for a little while. Um, and Jinja, Uganda is where Katie is. And Jinja, Uganda is a very small community. It's a very, very strange place, um, because it is a place where expats who, uh, predominantly missionary expats have effectively colonized a small area in the jungle of Uganda and pushed out all of the locals to the. Oh. And basically they all live on the literal edge of Jinja and the expats are very much living in this city that is beautiful and very westernized and very comfortable and very accommodating. And um, that is where I was. And it's also where Katie lives. And I had several encounters with her. It's a very small place um, just in the coffee shop. And at the time she was still in my mind, the, Oh my God, that's her, you know, and there I am and, and I'm doing what she's doing. And, you know, I actually, to be fair, I had no idea she was from that particular area. So when I went to Jinja, it turns out there's only so many places that you can go and be a missionary expat and be accepted. And I, but I wasn't like, aware going there that she was you were like there. seeking her out no, right yeah. no i didn't know that that the story took place in jinja but there's really only two places in uganda kampala which is the the city that you fly into the capital and then jinja where a lot of expat work is happening and then of course there's subset work going on um in the villages but i would say that most of that subset work is um stationed in either kampala or or jinja so I actually encountered her and I won't go into the, I won't, you know, there's a lot that I know now that is really, <laughs> really interesting. And I have had um, several conversations off the record with, um, with deconstructing persons about that because for whatever reason, and I didn't know this, it was very much my own experience as well. The one you just described of like reading the book, my cousin sent it to me in the mail when I was like 16 and I, yeah. you know, I, you know, just it was gifted to me story. as well. Yes, and yeah, because it was gifted to is, me as well. I didn't buy it. Mm-hmm. Remember that what I said at the beginning of this episode is I said kind of I can't remember exactly how I phrased it, but something to the effect of being washed in that water. You know, you go into the church and you're kind of um, 
washed in the water of you mentioned off the record before we started recording world vision and just kind of like this idea of mission work and being kind of groomed up is what I had said earlier. That was, yep, you you used the grooming. Yep. Yeah. That mission work, you know, we're these vulnerable women and we are privileged our entire lives. And we are told that by the grace of God, we're going to use that privilege to help the vulnerable. And as women to save them. Yes. So I, um, a little bit about my background in terms of personal separate from my kiddos. Um, I have been a photographer for nine years. That was obviously said in the beginning when I talked about how I was even able to afford becoming a foster parent. Um, but about four years ago, I realized that there was just so much happening that I wanted to go in terms of like me understanding a million things through the lens of what is addiction and why do people get addicted and how is addiction, you know, so disproportionately happening to vulnerable communities and all of these things that were happening. So I went back to school. I went to city college originally and then um, acquired four associate's degrees because apparently when you just keep taking classes and have no direction, they give you degrees at the end. And so that was (laughs) for a while. I was just very much didn't know what I wanted to do. I have severe ADHD. And at the time I was not diagnosed. And so I was just taking classes, editing photos while listening to these lectures, ended up getting told like, Hey, you have way too many credits to be at city college. We can give you these four AAs and you need to leave. And so I left and, um, I'm now getting my, I'm I'm finishing up my bachelor of science in biocultural anthropology at Oregon state, um, which is a research university. And throughout the pandemic, they actually developed a really great e-campus that was built out. And so, um, the biocultural component really synthesizes the biological and cultural you know, elements uh, of our tendencies. But I say that to kind of speak to the fact that when I, I can't remember what we were talking about before, ADHD. Um, but when I, when, when I started to do, um, started to look at a lot of the stuff that I was seeing uh, through the lens of like bio, like the biological stuff, I started to see, and this will be a perfect segue into talking about like white saviorism and stuff. But I started to see like, Oh, it makes sense that as a woman of, you know, pubescent age being groomed into this idea that I was going to go help vulnerable women was actually very satisfying to my biological drive. Right. And so I'm now having this evolutionary desire to, you know, that's very, I guess, evolutionarily appropriate to be groomed in that way. And that is why I think it is so, um, I guess, well received. By so, and why it is so well received by a particular type of woman and why we then go on to kind of, you know, I guess idealize it, et cetera. And so I look back on it now and I see that it wasn't so much my calling, unless you want to talk about it being my evolutionary calling, you know, to have children and to, you know, and to yield them. But that was later when I started doing, you know, my, my bachelor's, my undergrad, I started taking classes and I was like, Oh, like it, it makes a lot of sense that I wanted to go help vulnerable, you know, vulnerable children. And because that is, that is a lot of, you know, and not all women have these, it, it's by no means a one size fits all. Um, 
And that's a huge conversation right now in culture. But for me and for a lot of the women who fall subject to the mission complex that is built out in evangelical communities, I think we do have that biological drive to have children, to rear children, to attain children quickly. Um, and we don't have <laughs> the capacity to recognize that that's coming from a biological place that should not be and, and is really just not ethical to act on. And I think that's a great segue into talking just about the way that, um, I guess, white saviorism, which is what my original, the Chatty Bods podcast, when you first heard me, was kind of based in that conversation. Um, And that, to me, the white saviorism thing is interesting because basically, if we're talking about it through an evolutionary lens or through a biological lens, I think, um, you know, Coercion of pregnant people in crisis is huge, um, but you have these pregnant persons in crisis that are perpetuated, you know, they're, they're crises that are perpetuated onto them by systemic inequity. And then you have systemic racism that is so evident in the disproportionate numbers of, of persons experiencing. Like, why are there so many, you know, black children and brown children up for adoption versus white children, et cetera? And so, right. and so, my whole thing is, hmm, it seems like we have this biological drive that is being endorsed. And then we're going to these places where we can best and most quickly acquire, you know, where we can be of the most help, I say with air quotes, um, because those are unfortunately the populations that are disproportionately um, experiencing I guess the need for extra hands, I say in air quotes again, a big Christian term is extra hands, be the hand, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And then you have the market that is born from that. And then you have a business, then you have a capitalist business on your hand where, you know, and then especially when you start to incorporate women who cannot have the babies that they desire, um, which is unfortunately a huge portion of, of people who are adopting children. And so I don't know. That's just my, my thought is that I think so much of white saviorism comes from the fact that if we're talking about children, which unfortunately is the reality as um, a commodity, children as, Mm -hmm. you know, something that is, then you have a situation where, where are those children? Who are they? They're not white children. You know, you can't, you would never see a white mother um, that wasn't in a, a really dire situation that was likely, you know, systemically imposed to a degree, just giving out her child. But if you go to Uganda, and I had this happen multiple times, you will literally see women get off of their boda boda, which is like a motorcycle, and try to hand you as a white woman their, like they will literally walk up to you with their baby. And they will say, here you go, because they have, that's a whole different problem, but they have it ingrained in their minds that they are inferior and that they will never be able to parent because the culture that they live in right now is one dominated by white women who provide aid. And that perpetuates this false narrative that they are inferior. And I'm going all over the place, but there's a lot. No, no, (laughs) but it's, it's so cyclical. And the idea that like, if, if, and it's kind of the, it, whenever problems are so cyclical, like cyclical, like this, trying to get back to like, okay, where did this start? Where did this start can be tricky. But I think that the thing that's so interesting is like, 
if you're looking at it and you're saying, um, from a, from a religious perspective, if you're the people who are perpetuating this cycle, right. And you're, you're encouraging, um, world vision to come into churches and to market and to give their little pamphlets with the, with the photos of the sad children, you're, you're encouraging this idea that these children need saving and you're primarily marketing to a white audience of, Hey, white people, these black and brown children need your help. And so from a religious perspective, I can see people who've grown up in the church their whole lives really buying into that narrative, right? And thinking that, no, truly, we we are the ones who help. And then you look at it from the perspective of, well, if you're a um, black or brown community and you're constantly having these white people come in and kind of preach the narrative that they're there to help, it only takes so long before you start to kind of be indoctrinated with the idea of, oh, well, maybe we really do need their help. And maybe we really aren't fit for this. Because if you're having manipulative tactics thrown down your throat constantly of like, no, no, but you need help. We need to help you. We have this this book of life. We have this truth. We have this higher power. We have, and I've talked about this multiple times on the podcast, but that the saviorism in Christianity and evangelical Christianity specifically, and I'll clarify that as American evangelical Christianity, Mm -hmm. the saviorism that is so deeply rooted in the idea of you have this book, the book is the answer. Uh, Any other religion, even if they have their book, they're wrong. They don't have the answer. Mm -hmm. You have the answer. You hear it in chapels. You hear it in youth services of the, the songs that are sung. And the, there was the one song that was in the two thousands of like, the way truth to life and you had the little hand motions and it's like you're you're teaching very Mm -hmm. small babies like no you have everything you need in this book and i think that breeds two different things i think for one it obviously is going to breed white saviorism because american evangelical christianity is primarily the majority of of that group especially evangelical christianity is a lot of white people especially mega churches a lot of white people and so Mm -hmm. you've got you're giving this information to white people. So you're, you're breeding white saviorism. Simultaneously, you're breeding a lot of prideful people. And specifically, you're breeding a lot of prideful kids because you're teaching children, hey, you have all the answers. You don't need any other answers. Now go and teach that to other people. And so mm-hmm. when you have someone who is inherently stubborn, black and white thinking, like me, <laughs> and you give them this idea of, hey, you have all the answers. You don't need to listen to anyone else. You don't need to take into account anyone else's life experiences, human experiences, knowledge, education. You know more than a 90-year-old who has lived way more life than you because you have this book. You're just teaching people to be so close-minded, so prideful, so uh, not receptive to any other point of view because they already have all the answers. And so it's a very intense manipulation tactic that is, like you said, groomed into children. Like we're talking, we're teaching children this. And that's obviously going to impact their developmental uh, process where you're not having that same um, develop, developmental journey of being able to make mistakes and learn and grow and learn from other people and then adjust and learn and adjust and learn and adjust. Because for one, you already have everything you need because you have the book. Mm-hmm. The book's the Bible, by the way, for those who are listening <laughs> yet to actually <laughs> title it. Um, you have the Bible. And then for two, um, you're also, you're, you're not able to make the same mistakes because the stakes are so high. You're talking about stakes that are really, really, really high. You're teaching kids about hell and you're teaching kids about 
this eternity of pain and death. And so the stakes are really high. Like the idea of making mistakes and growing. And for me, I think that's why um, you see white saviorism, you see racism, you see misogyny, you see ableism, you see a lot of these um, thought processes that are very black and white and are very um, fundamentalist and are very, um, no, this is right, this is wrong. And you see those uh, people not being able to separate and look at the nuance and look at the gray of, oh, I've grown up with these ideas. Oh, I have racist thoughts. How do I unpack that? How do I unlearn that? How do I get rid of those? And separating the fact that if I have these bad thoughts that essentially were groomed into me as a child, how do I unlearn those without deeming myself as a bad person? And I think that that then essentially just like emotionally stunts people because Mm -hmm. they're not able to separate that. And they're not able to say, well, I'm not a bad person just because I have bad thoughts. How do I actively work towards unlearning that? I am 23. I've been deconstructing for five years. I 100% still have internalized misogyny and internalized homophobia. And that's Mm -hmm. something that I'm constantly unpacking and constantly unlearning. And my therapist has like encouraged me, and I'm sure a lot of therapists have encouraged a lot of people, um, the idea of you're not responsible for that initial thought. Because that initial thought often comes from things that were groomed into you, society, things that have just been placed upon you. You're responsible for, ooh, that was a bad thought. How do I respond to that thought? How do I combat that thought? How do I replace that thought with a better thought? Mm-hmm. And that can come down to... Uh, how you view other populations that can come down to how you view your own body. If you look in the mirror and you say, Oh God, I look ugly today. That's the first thought. Okay. Pause. Do I look ugly? Do I need to approach my appearance? Can I just acknowledge my body as being a body that helped me get here today? I was able to do X, Y, Z today. I ate food today. Okay, Mm -hmm. cool. We've reframed that. Let's move forward. And that, that step I think often is the the saying it's the key to unpacking a lot of this, I think is too narrow because we're talking about systems that are massive and like years and years and years and years and years of very systemic thought processes. But I think that the thing that really stunts people specifically in evangelicalism is the idea that there's such this high stakes of bad and good and right and wrong and trying to look at the gray and look at the, well, I can have this bad thought and maybe not be a bad person because I've had people that almost get so close to acknowledging that maybe they have racist thoughts. And then it's like, you see the wall come up and it's, Mm -hmm. well, I'm not racist. I'm not racist. Mm -hmm. I'm not a bad person. I'm not, I could never be racist. Why would you say that to me? And then the learning is gone. And so I think a lot of the times when we're talking about white saviorism and saviorism in general in religion, it's obviously like this is such a massive, 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 massive conversation that is not going to get unpacked in an hour long podcast. But like it's we're talking about so many different things of the manipulation and the the cyclicalness of it and the going and basically like everything is so narrow minded and everything is so one track mind that trying to look at it from a zoomed out perspective is often shut down. And whether that's mm-hmm. shut down internally or externally is is kind of up for, up for debate and it can be both. But, um, I think it, I, yeah, I, I think that the, the, the white saviorism and the, I, the kind of the world vision effect to an extent, um, Mm -hmm. which sorry, world vision, but I'm, I'm gonna really hone in on you. Um, I I think it also, and I want to bring this to current world events. I think it is very linked 
to the misogyny and the um, current dialogue surrounding adoption, specifically in the wake of Roe v. Wade. And I know this is a wider topic, but I want to hop into this really quick because I, I think that we're talking about saviorism. We're talking about the idea that everyone needs to be saved and that people who have the Bible have all the knowledge, all the, all the, uh, the ability to save. Um, how do you think that using adoption as essentially a weapon against abortion can be incredibly dangerous and incredibly misleading? Oh, yes. And I feel like everything that you're saying rings so true. And then I just hope and I honestly, it sounds like with your audience, the capacity is there to jump from all of these different, you know, we are talking about so many things and they are all cyclical. They are all connected and they are all in a lot of ways essential. That's why I feel like it is so anti-intellectual to try to have a conversation with someone who will not in good faith give you more than three minutes to disprove God or to disprove, you know, Christianity or what, and you know, you, you know, those people and you know, those people that really try to do that gotcha moment where it's like, see, like, you know, and you're getting flustered and you're trying to explain everything in their, you know, 90 second capacity. And it's one of those things where if you don't delve into you know, every nuance that we've touched on and a hundred more, you're not really going to be able to have a good faith conversation where you're able to really examine the ethos at stake, the, you know, all of the things that are at stake. Um, And so anyways, it's not going to happen in 90 seconds. (laughs) No, and it's not going to happen in an hour or even three hours, you know, Um, but we try to synthesize as much as we can. I will say, and this will hopefully feed into the question that you just asked me, that going off of what we both just said, um, I just want to repeat something that I had said in light of your response. I had said that coercion of pregnant people in crisis is huge. Mm-hmm. And yep. I had said, you know, you have these pregnant people that are in crisis um, and they're in these crisis crises because of it being perpetuated onto them by systemic inequity. Um, and then I want to kind of delve into use the bridge of, talking about informed consent um, and how I believe that informed consent is unfortunately a luxury afforded to the elite in a lot of ways because, because informed consent is me telling you, Hey, you're pregnant right now. This is what's going to happen. And these are all the options now to tie this into both parts of the podcast right now to say that, you know, this individual who comes to the conversation with just this, pathological stance of the utmost knowledge, aka someone that might be going to a vulnerable woman who does not have the privilege of informed consent, um, having that individual being domineering over this pregnant person and saying, you know, this is what's going to happen to you if you don't give your baby up for adoption, if you don't immediately, you know, carry your baby to term. This is what happens when you have the government dictating your own consent, the government telling Mm -hmm. you, you know, we're actually going to make sure that you can't consent to what you might want to do with your body because that is too risky for us. And, um, so, you know, that's all the first half of the conversation is just talking about the type of person and the power dynamic and the imbalance of power that happens when you have governments or persons of power, persons with that pathological um, 
power complex that you just described so eloquently of the black and the white and of being this way because they were, you know, groomed this way, coming up and and then saying to a person or a group of persons, uh, our book says that your baby is, you know, viable at, you know, at the moment that the, yeah. the sperm and the egg meet and that that's what a human being is. And that's what our book says. And even though we haven't always believed it, and that's not congruent with what Christianity has always said today, right now, that is the stance. And then you have these right. people who, yeah. And, and then you have these people who unfortunately don't have access to other opinions, unfortunately don't have access to, you know, they don't have access to that informed consent that, that they deserve. And then you have this right. situ- situation to answer your question directly where, um, where you have people offering adoption as a catch all solution to abortion which is incredibly harmful. And I could get so deep into this, especially from a biological perspective because of the work that I'm doing right now in my undergrad, but I'll try to stick just to some really surface level statistics for the sake of time. I just want people to like really think about this for a second. So there are more than 250,000 children that are placed into the foster care system in the United States every single year. So we're talking specifically about the United States because these abortion laws, the Roe v. Wade, all of that's happening in the U.S., right? Um, So at present, like right now, as you and I are having this conversation, there are over 400,000 children in foster care. And of those 400,000 children in foster care, approximately 117,000 of them are waiting to be adopted, meaning that they are free and clear. You could call the phone right now and you could go and adopt them and it would be pretty much free. So there's no excuse, there's no reason, there's no logical reason why someone whose entire identity is rooted in um, wanting to adopt a child couldn't do that by the thousands right here, right now in this moment. They could stop listening to the podcast and go and do it, you know. Um, but so these children, we know these are children who fall squarely out of the scope of the idealistic child, you know, and, and the idealistic child, um, comes from, oh gosh, how deep do I want to get into this? And I'll get back onto stats, but basically, I don't know how much I want to go into that. Let me hold on. Let me just get back. Let me just do stats first. But so fair enough, because that I could go so deep into like, what is the idealistic newborn and how is that shaped by this culture of individualism and materialism and all of that, that really also shaped uh, fundamentalism. And that's a really interesting conversation in and of itself. But so just sticking with the stats, in 2020, there were 930,000 abortions that were performed. So that number is nearly four times the number of children who enter foster care each year. So we can assume based on the population of individuals who are more inclined to receive abortion services, that um, that if born, a significant percentage of those 930,000 individuals would encounter an experience with child protective services, meaning that their life would be dependent on child protective services serving them, serving them welfare. But the American welfare policy, it's simply, it is simply anti-intellectual. It is simply the stupidest argument I have ever heard in my life. If you have ever been anywhere near the system, the way that I have been for the last five years, to say that we have a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the infrastructure 
that is necessary to support not just the children we have now, not just the 400,000 that we have now, but potentially an that influx, come out of that 930,000. Yeah, a year, right? An influx of hundreds of thousands of children. So we just don't have the welfare policy to support even like I said the children that are there now. So therefore I think that the argument is just it's fundamentally unhelpful to suggest that adoption is a solution to abortion. It's just, it's fundamentally unhelpful. I think that that's what my view is. And I could get really into the biological, this is not the podcast for that, but of why I just oppose the idea in general of abortion being regulated by a government, unless you want to concede that I have freedom of religion. And I can get really into that as well. And actually, I have a stronger, I think, argument for that because, and I won't get into the argument, but I will say because anyone listening to me list, like list these stats right now, who fundamentally believes slash thinks they fundamentally believe that life begins at conception. They're simply in a different ethos camp, meaning that I could tell you all the things in the world about why it's not realistic to support those children. And their only response is going to be something very difficult to receive. Like, well, we need to, you know, improve, the infrastructure of the system. And I'm saying, yes, you're so right. And actually what's so funny about that argument, what I just love about that argument is that they're so close to the point, which is that (laughs) um, because actually um, if you look at the numbers, you see that uh, policies or or years where policies that um, strongly support pregnant persons, especially vulnerable pregnant persons, um, federal policies are implemented during almost every Democratic elect that we've had have seen less abortions. And less abortions is what we want, right? Because here's the thing. I can sit here and say, and I can actually, you know, I will tell anyone that I'm having this conversation with, I can say, of course, I want less abortions. And they're like, what? And I'm like, well, yes, because I mean, if I could prevent, oh, you know, a a woman, a person from getting like one less skinned knee, I would, because that's just like, it's stupid to say that you'd want someone to go through a procedure just because you want them to, right? Of course not. Now, what that would look like is maybe just better education, better pregnancy prevention education, or maybe it would look like a world where there was an actual reasonable option for someone to have what they do not have, say that be, you know, a guarantee that they were going to have childcare, a guarantee that they were going to have welfare services. But that, that's completely different. To say that you want to support in that way is completely different than saying you want to police an individual to make a choice with Mm -hmm. their body. Right. So you have individual, the individual choice stands. And if that individual feels like they have had all of the services provided to them and all of the, everything we know for a fact that they don't want to skin knee either in this hypothetical, you know, in this, we know for a fact that that's not the case. People don't willingly put themselves in positions where they go and get procedures. Like that's just not something that happens. (laughs) People don't want to take the time out of their day, even if it's just for the sake of the fact they don't want to drive there. You know, they don't want to take the hour. It doesn't matter. And so well, and then, at the you, end of- then you look at access coalitions too, and you look at, um, so for context, episode 33 and episode 45, we had, um, we had Moji and Marie on episode 33 and we had just Moji on episode 35. But, um, 
uh, Marie Kahn works for Midwest Access Coalition, and she talked to us a lot on episode 33 about the fact that the people who have the argument of like, well, I know people who just get abortions all the time, don't understand the cost of abortion. If you mm-hmm. have, um, if you're in a state where you have to travel to get an abortion, the cost for um, transportation, the cost for food, the cost for childcare, the cost for um, lodging, the cost to take time off of work. Um, if you're in states that are more abortion hostile, the fact that you have to often, um, there's waiting periods and those waiting Mm -hmm. periods are basically, um, manipulation tactics to get people to not get an abortion. Um, and you then have to provide, find funding for extended lodging and extended transportation and extended food Mm -hmm. and extended childcare, because now you're forced to wait. And that that's not some that's not like going to a fucking theme park. It's not like that's like a woohoo, like this is a fun activity for a Thursday. Okay. Like fuck no. Like no one's doing this just for fun. People are doing it um really for the most part out of necessity. And mm-hmm. whether that be out of necessity of I don't want a child, uh this would be a too too traumatic of a pregnancy for me. Mm-hmm. Um or simply, I don't want a child, period. And that's the end of the story. Um, I'd have children already and I can't afford another child. Mm-hmm. Having a child would be dangerous to my health. Having a child would be dangerous to my mental well-being, whatever. This is not something that people just do for the hell of it. And the idea, that argument circulating, like you said, is so just based in, honestly, I think, ignorance and a lack of education but i don't even think it's a lack of education because i think if a lot of people who like perpetuate that argument could educate themselves if they so wanted to um and are choosing to stay in that headspace of just like well no i'm a i'm a one choice voter one choice person one choice lifestyle of no this is the one thing that i that i'm gonna die on a hill for and i think um simultaneously if you really care that much about saving the babies for one, why are you not volunteering in foster care programs? Why are you not volunteering in youth programs? Why are you not adopting? Why are you not um, advocating more for XYZ? Why are you not uh, implementing policies and advocating for policies that would then make adoption more viable? Why are you not? Like, there's so many things that we can go down the road of if you actually care that much, fucking put your money where your mouth is and you don't. And that's the part that I don't that I don't fuck with. And specifically over the last year, talking to the abortion activists and workers that I have and coming from a very evangelical background and abortion is like the end of the world in my right. family environment. Um, hearing just the logistics of it, I'm a logical person. <laughs> I can right. look at statistics and I can look at logic and I can say, okay, kind of emotions aside, a lot of the ways that I have exited evangelicalism is because of logic. It's things that right. just quite literally haven't made sense to me. And mm-hmm. I think the the choice, I do think it's a choice to put your emotion and put those blinders on. I think that's choice um, to put the blinders on and decide to ignore logic Um makes it really clear that the actual desire and the actual goal of the campaign is not to save babies, to save children, to save women, to protect uh, pregnant people. Because if we're protecting pregnant people, why are we not advocating for black pregnant people? Why is the black mortality rate for mothers so fucking high? Like why, if we're really that worried about pregnant people, why are they getting left behind? And it's because the, the, the care is not, it may be at a very surface level, people think that they're truly caring, but if you are, then like, why is the work not accompanying the care? Like, why are we not walking the talk if we'd like to get into religious uh, sayings? Yes. <laughs> and that that's the part that I, I don't really, I don't fuck with. 
A hundred percent. And I think that you're synthesizing so much of what, you know, I'm trying to synthesize as well, which is just that let's just, it's so funny to me because you know how a lot of uh, the ab- abortion argument or the pro-life I say with parentheses argument uh, or with air quotes um, is, oh, well, that's, you know, for instance, they'll say, you know, well, so few babies account for babies that are that are conceived because of rape. That's just such a small number. It's ridiculous to even talk about that. That's their argument. And I'm right. like, how many babies, probably a much smaller number, are being aborted for fun? You know, that may, I'm not going to say there's not one person out there that doesn't have some sort of a really complex mental health disorder, because I don't know, I'm assuming that just, you know, somebody might have that mental health disorder, but it is a much smaller number. And yet those are the, like, you are peddling so hard the narrative that this is just something that people do for leisure when the numbers show otherwise. And so the reality is, is if there is one person out there who does that, um, yeah, that person does have the right to choose what they want to do with their body. A, yeah. B, if you're so, con- yeah, if you're so concerned with, with, um, with that small number, first of all, then you have to concede that it's too small of a number to talk about rape, you know, babies conceived with rape, because that doesn't make sense. That's, that's anti intellect you know, that's not philosophically right. congruent. So that you're done there. But okay, you want to talk about that one person. Guess what, friend? You're not going to change that person. It sounds like they have something, um, you know, rooted in if they're really having regularly having, as they will tell you, oh, they're regularly having abortions for fun. They're regularly having abortions be- just because they're satanic, whatever they want to say. Well, then that person maybe has some stuff that I promise you that person's going to get an abortion, even if it's not legal. I promise you that. So what you want to do mm-hmm. is you want to redirect your focus where you know the numbers. If it's really about every life mattering, then let's play Titanic for a second and let's pretend that we have the only the ability to put a finite number of people on the life raft. Okay. If you are looking, if you're the one on the life raft trying to get people on, you're not going to be able to save someone, um, quote unquote, save someone, you know, going with their, their analogy there that is, is in the right. back of the boat so far away from where you are, there's fire between you and them. And, you know, it's just logistically, it's not feasible, especially when you have hundreds of thousands of people right there getting, wanting to get on the boat right there. They have to do freaking news eight. You know, the local news station has to come by and interview these beautiful children who want nothing more than to be adopted into your family. Even if you are pathologically problematic and evangelical, all they want is a family. All the, not to say that right. that's, I, that's something we're not even going to be able to get into is the ethos of like, what do I believe about, you know, people who are non-affirming adopting children or fostering or what have you. But that's a whole different yep. story. But let's just say right now that if it's about getting as many people on the life as possible. It's about saving as many lives as possible. You cannot in good conscience argue without clearing every single person in front of you. You cannot argue for the person in the very, very back that is choosing to be on the other side because that is their choice. I mean, the thing of it is, is that at the end of the day, we all have philosophical freedom if we're going by the constitution. You know, we all have philosophical freedom. I'm expanding, you know, religious freedom, meaning that if you want to die, you should, in my opinion, be able to die. (laughs) If you want, I mean, this is a whole conversation you're talking about. I know that you're from Washington. I know that there's a big conversation up there right now about, um, what is it called? It's, it's, um, trigger warning, but it's medically supported suicide for people. Assisted suicide? Assisted suicide. Yes. Um, and for me personally, I don't philosophically view a human being as a human being 
uh, for me, I've, I've decided that consciousness is a big component of that, but that's my religious and philosophical freedom to make that assumption, to make that choice, which goes into another huge conversation, which was actually very relevant <laughs> in, in, um, very relevant in the foster care world because right around the time of Roe v. Wade, even when it was just being like, remember when they, they were, the papers were leaked? Um, yeah. Like, like several weeks or even like it might have been a couple months. It was like, prior. It was in, I think it was May. I think it was May. Yeah. Or mm-hmm. maybe April, but I, I, yeah, it was around that time. There was so many, um, the foster and adoptive sphere online is very small and it's very, I would say very narrow. There's a lot of very evangelical voices that have a huge platform as the informants that speak effectively on behalf, unfortunately of all of us, or, or, or I guess appear to speak on behalf of all of us um, because they assert themselves in that way. You know, I am a foster mom and this is my identity and I write books about it and et cetera, et cetera. And then it's all through the lens of this really unfortunate, you know, worldview. But right around the time right. that that happened, there was a biological study that came out that was a, big interest to me because it, it was very biocultural in nature. And it was talking about how um, there was an anonymous poll and I'll try to keep it, you know, it was, a, it was a study I say with air quotes that basically it looked at 70,000 biologists perspective on when life begins. I don't know if you saw this and no. the way that it read, although it was completely incorrect in the way that it read, it read like almost a hundred percent of them believe that life began at conception. Let me tell you, the world went wild. Like the foster care world went wild for this. Um, it was really sad and scary. And of course it was very heavily regurgitated information. And I went in and I looked at it and I was like, why? Like, and I was thinking like of all the biologists, I know none of them, like in my head, I was even being like manipulated a little bit because it felt it was such good propaganda. I was like, I don't know any biologists that are not pro like pro choice. And I was thinking like, why are there so many of them? Like, is this all from one? I just could not figure it out. And then like, I just came to the realization that they were making you know, they were making a scientific point and science, you know, they can't establish when a fertilized cell or embryo or fetus becomes a human being because that's fundamentally philosophical. It's fundamentally religious, if you will, you know, or spiritual or what have you. But they were, um, you know, so they were running with this with this fundamentally philosophical question and biologists, because it was taken as an anonymous poll, they were just kind of answering like, I guess the capacity for life. And it was very difficult to read because they were almost unanimously saying, yes, there's capacity for life here, which we know because why else would you take action to potentially mitigate that potential for life from becoming more than that potential if you weren't, the general public wasn't aware that there was potential for life there, right? Like it's just, But, you know, I knew right when I saw the article that it was bad because it was propaganda being endorsed by these very loud voices that have, you know, like I said, been broadly deemed credible in the community. But at the end of the day, you know, it was interesting because just 70 of the 60,000 people that were interviewed aligned with the final, like they they put it together, 70. Oof. Oof, 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 oof. Because they were like, wait, no, this is not what life means to us. We have a fundamental different ethos 
about the word life. The word life is, you know, it's, it's a word. It's, uh, there's etymology to it. And they have this perspective, this evangelical informed perspective, this, this fundamentalist informed perspective of what life is. And then these biologists were answering the question through the lens of their bio, their work as biologists. And so when it was applied through the lens of the different etymology, they were like, no. And six, you know, right. literally 60,000 people and 70 said, yes, I agree with this. And so that just goes to show the power of the misinformation being like, you know, being really just pulsed through the foster and adoptive community and the way that there is a chokehold on the foster and adoptive community that I think is talk about cyclical fed by the uh, propaganda surrounding white saviorism and adoption and the need to adopt and the need to save um, that was fueled by the fall of Roe v. Wade, the very tragic fall of Roe v. Wade. Um, And then they're now trying to do everything in their power to, oh gosh, it was so interesting. It was ringing so true to me when you had said that even a 90 year old person could not be as wise as them because they had their book. And I was thinking, gosh, this is so real. It's so true because the thing of it is, is that I could sit there before a Christian individual and say, Hey, you know what? Fundamentally, I don't believe that human life begins at conception. And they could say, well, I have my book. I have the backing of my culture that is very um, sympathetic towards my view. And I have the power. And therefore I will do everything in my power to delegitimize you, to to demonize you, to monsterize, to do anything except for explore the possibility of your logic, except for to have, you know, a good faith conversation with you that allows for nuance, that allows for real honest discourse that is actually analyzing facts and statistics. And it's, it's exhausting because talking about, you know, present day and bringing it back to the Roe v. Wade thing. um, It's hard. It's hard to say this, but even when I was in it and even when I was mirroring it, when Oliver was very young and when I was still deconstructing from like my early mission days, I knew the several individuals who are now massive uh, pro-life advocates and also foster parents and adoptive parents in the community, uh, the social media community. I knew them. I knew them personally. I was in small groups with them. I was, you know, in a lot of, we did a lot of collaborations together and I could have seen it from, I did see it in a lot of ways from five years away or from a hundred miles away, whatever you want to say the fact that they would be some of the biggest champions for the misinformation surrounding the fall of Roe v. Wade. And Mm. it's very, very difficult because they are inadvertently perpetuating just an obscene amount of harm, an obscene amount of harm. And it is so difficult because they're doing it through the lens of the exact opposite, you know, saying that they are perpetuating the exact opposite, um, which is very difficult you are being told by these individuals that they are there to aid, that they are there to help, that they are there to intercept the suffering. And yet their narrative is perpetuating suffering. And then it's hard because this conversation, it is, it is not quantifiable. You cannot know how many people exactly would have, but did not have an abortion. You cannot know how many of those children, right. <laughs> children you know, it's not quantifiable, which is very, very 
convenient for them, um, as so much of the stance on abortion is convenient for them in general. Um, you know, there's just so much convenience involved, I think, in being an advocate for the unborn, um, because you have so much hypothetical responsibility. And, Right. And that's really interesting as well. But yes, it's hard because I knew these people for a long time. And I do believe that a large majority of them are advocating for their belief in, in good faith. And that's another difficult mm-hmm. conversation is how do you have these conversations with people who are genuinely advocating? And I don't think that they are monsters. I think that they are good parents. I think that they are, you know, in a lot of ways, they mirror um, the the families that you and I come from, you know? Um, and so it's difficult, but it's just so difficult to talk about the number of, of instances of unnecessary trauma that they are inducing. And this actually, right. I know that sooner rather than later, we'll, we'll wrap up and we'll have a million more things to say, but I, <laughs> I want to say that adult adoptees, uh, people who were adopted when they were children are the voices that we should be listening to above all compared to foster and adoptive parents. And I would love for you, and I can actually connect you with some adult adoptees to have one on the podcast um, because yeah. that that is such an important voice. And it is actually, it's it's so transcendent in terms of like the value um, of, you know, a foster parent or someone who has been in that role. But I will say that adult adoptees, they do not unanimously concede that they would have chosen the life that they had over an abortion. As a matter of fact, I don't know her name. And so maybe we can link it in the, in the afters um, once I find it, but there was a incredible adult adoptee. I believe she was Korean American is how she identified. And she, um, was the one who brought me on to that, uh, to the point I'm making right now. And she had said in a, in an interview that she did for the Washington Post, she had said, you know, not all of us would answer the question that a Christian asked them, like, well, what if you had been aborted with what they want us to say? They would not immediately say, you know, because then she beautifully, and again, I'm going to just have you link it if you want to. She beautifully kind of, outlined like she said something really artistic about just kind of having been absorbed by the earth again and never never having to consume or like assume the trauma that she did um that is something that she believes fundamentally and that's her religious right in america as a korean american as american you know who follows the same constitution as we all do to be able to have the choice to believe that maybe she would have been absorbed by the earth um in a way that would have allowed for less trauma or even just the lack of awareness of trauma. And that's an interesting point. Yeah. Yeah. I think the assumption that people would rather, uh, I, I, and this is a pessimistic viewpoint, but I've had people, uh, bring that to me and I'm not an adult adoptee, but even just kind of bring the, the hypothetical question of like, well, what if you had been aborted? And I've answered many times, like my life's been pretty fucking traumatic. So the idea of not having to live through that doesn't sound bad to me. Like you're talking to someone who's been had suicidal ideation since I was 12. (laughs) So the idea of death is not, is not scary to me. The idea of non-existence is not scary to me. It never has been. And so I think that at the core of that argument there, there is uh, in so many different ways, there is an uh, just, I guess, 
not ignorance, but there is a disregard for trauma and a disregard for the weight of trauma and the assumption that just purely being alive, um, purely being alive is essentially justification for going through trauma. And for a lot of people, the the just purely being alive and living life is, is not a good enough like reward for living through all of the trauma. And I think that people assume that it is. Um, and you know, that that's a, once again, so many of our points have been, that's a whole nother conversation. Um, but I do want to get into at the very end here. Um, I, your perspective on foster care, like I said, pretty drastically changed my perspective. And I just want to end on if you could give anyone who is fostering, um, or who wants to foster kind of a piece of advice, what would it be? And specifically to the point of, would you give advice on, um, the servanthood of it all? Because you have said, you said in the, in the chatty prods podcast that, um, the goal is to serve the biological families. It's not just to, uh, specifically, and I love, I I wish I could have just actually quoted you from this, but you said it's not to get a couture child out of it, which I loved that. Um, and my experience, uh, with foster care, um, I've talked about it a tiny bit on the podcast, but my family was a foster family and we fostered two children and, um, fostered to adopt. And there was really very little awareness or recognition that, um, it wasn't, it wasn't us versus the, the birth parents. I think as, especially as a child, I was only seven and you don't, you don't tap into the nuance there. You look at the birth parents and you say, well, we want their kid. And so therefore they're the enemy and we must take them out. And that's how I viewed it as a child. And I think that sets you up for more trauma that sets you up for more grief. And when you're in an evangelical space, there is very little trauma-informed care. There are very few trauma resources. There is very little grief work. And so you're essentially setting people up for um, trauma and disappointment. And um, you're setting the children up for um, uh, battles between parents that don't need to exist and conflict that doesn't need to exist. And you're creating an us versus them situation that doesn't need to be there. And then simultaneously, you're not giving resources to heal from that. And so... um, if you could give one piece of advice to either someone who's actively fostering or someone who wants to foster, what would your advice be in, in the lens of kind of that servanthood? Yes. So many things. (laughs) Um, And yeah, I just want to acknowledge the fact that originally, and we knew this was a possibility, but originally we had kind of this outline and and Fina's so careful to like, really, I'm so impressed with how this podcast is run. And I'm not going to take too much time to say that. (laughs) But this podcast is very well run, especially on the back end. And as someone who dabbled in podcasting, um, I will say that it's it's just really well done. And so we had this great outline. Thank you. We knew going into it that you and I are, are very much, uh, there's a very high risk that to, you know, you and I getting in the same space is going to result in a lot of, but yes, I do want to underscore the uh, original point of the podcast and then yeah. maybe have option to like, you know, build out with resources in the future or something like that. Cause I don't know that we'll be able to get into it as much as I would love. But, um, you know, I, I would say that at its core, foster care is defined as, and you sign on to the dotted line when you sign up for foster care, um, it's defined as a temporary service provided by the states for children who cannot live with their families. 
So we are the temporary caregivers <laughs> that offer this this service. So we're the caregivers that provide the service, right? And so in that in that way, we are literally by definition, we are the servants because by definition, we are the, the care providers. And unfortunately, and this is just a big reality check, this is coming from someone who had I done this with you a year ago and I did the, the chatty broads a couple of years ago, um, almost a couple, which is just crazy. Um, or I guess, yeah. yeah. Oh my God. Holy crap. Time is flying. I think it was like almost three years ago. Yeah. I think it was almost no, three years ago. No, there is no way. I, I have to have been like I'll two care. years No, I, I literally, cause it, it definitely, was it during the pandemic? I don't think it was. It was right. It was right when it was okay. It was two years ago. It was two years ago this month, I think. But oh, so you're right. You're then, right. October 23rd, even that is, 2020. Even that, yes. Even that is so much longer. Like I feel like it was six months ago, but we've actually gone through yeah. a lot since then as a foster family. And we experienced our first, um, I, I guess our first experience with having to think about foster care through the lens of child rights, which is a whole nother topic we're not going to get to today. Um, and so it's yeah. just, and so, um, but so I'll stick with, kind of answering the question, but we really had a lot, I guess, put in, I, I met my partner, um, since I did Chatty Broads, my, you know, I was doing this all alone. And then I met my, my beautiful partner, Maddie, who has been along for the ride and who actually, we met the night that Oliver's cousin was born and we took custody of Oliver's cousin the next week, um, out of, out of the NICU and just crazy stuff. And so she literally has been with me through it all. We raised him for 13 months and then he went home to a biological father. Um, I've adjusted this year to like living with a partner and like having, you know, there's so much duality with that, but lots has shifted. And I think that my focus in the Chatty Broads podcast was just so much rooted in the experience I was having then. And now here I am with, you know, I could have a whole other episode with you about like where I am now. But I will say that right. ultimately, like, we are the temporary caregivers. And as much as I would like to say that we can change the laws and the policies and the rules and the regulations and make everybody do their jobs. And, you know, I am so much someone who thought I would foster forever. This is where I was going with what I just said. And now I'm someone who realizes that I might be better equipped doing work in the legal side of things or in the policy side of things. Um, we need foster parents. We need foster parents. That is the number one need because no matter what we do on the policy side, it's not going to keep a child warm at night, no matter what we do on the legal side, you know? And so there is no greater, I would say, need than someone being able to hang their hat and say, wow, I might not be able to give this child every single thing that, that I want to. I might, this, this might not go any way that I want it to go. But that is not your role. As the foster parent, your role is to provide them with the absolute best top-notch care that you can while they are in your care. And then it is, it is then to concede whatever the state or the broken system. And in a lot of times it is, you know, by proxy of a broken system. But one thing that I will say is that biological families have co the constitutional an ethical, like I, I believe on uh, a fundamental level, like an, a, a fundamental, fundamental ethical level, a right to their children. They have a right to their children. 
not to mention the fact that adoption and adult adoptees will scream this from the rooftops and then white adoptive moms with very pretty aesthetic feeds will cover it up. Um, you know, adoptees will scream adoption is trauma and then adoptive mothers will, will hashtag adoption is love. And that is just so redactive because they are saying mom or potential mom or, you know, I have trauma. I am not okay because of the fact that I do not live a life with my biological family. And then for someone or a group of someone's to say, we can fix it with love. We can fix it with an Instagram filter. We can fix it with enough Build-A-Bears and with enough Disneyland trips and with enough, you know, uh, homeschool, you know, <laughs> education. We can fix it. And the reality is, is that you can't. Adoption is traumatic because the people experiencing being adopted are telling us that it is traumatic. And that is enough because they are the ones living the experience. And so talking about things that are unquantifiable, it is unquantifiable to say if someone who was separated from their birth parent um, because of X, Y, and Z has had less or more trauma than being put in a system that has put them in 17 homes in three years. You know, you hear story after story after story of, and I've lived story after story after story of children's lives being absolutely mutilated by the system that is, that is alleged, alleging to protect them, alleging to provide them and their families welfare. There is a incredible lack of cultural competency in child welfare. It is incredibly racist. It is incredibly problematic. And so again, I'm just not going to be able to synthesize the way that I would love to in the short time that we have left to keep within the pod, the, you know, the podcast parameters. But I will say that we underscore adoptive person trauma, <laughs> people who are adoptees. Um, we underscore their trauma when we assume that they will have a better life with us than they will with the, the biological families that they come from. Moreover, right. you have the stories of children who, yes, to be fair, to have a, you know, a philosophically congruent argument, yes, their life probably was better with their adoptive parent than it may have been with their biological parent. But the glorification slash the over-glorification of those stories creates a false narrative that that is always or even mostly the case. When I wouldn't even go as far as to say that it is mostly the case, let alone always the case. And, you know, adoptive parents are people, too. They have trauma, too. They have shit, too. And adoptive parents perpetuating trauma onto their children is very common. And it's something that gets completely glazed over in the conversation because it's not a pretty thing to talk about. And the reality is, is that, again, we can't quantify. We cannot quantify what life would have been like if you know, in in any way, it's just so difficult. Any more than we can quantify what a person may have been like if they had not been aborted, you know, or what, a, you know, as, as a fetus. Um, it's just not a fair conversation to have. 
And at least not as an adoptive parent, if an adoptive person wants to explore who they would have been, obviously power to them, but it's not something to assume, oh, my adopted child is automatically better. But so this kind of speaks to what we started at, which is like that foster to adopt. You know, we've all heard it. We've all seen it hashtagged. Um, A lot of us have donated to families, you know, pursuing that, you know, we want to support them and we want to give to this, you know, journey that they're on. But the reality is, is that foster care is, is a temporary service. And that if the foster care system, the child welfare system was doing its damn job, these children would be returned to their biological families at a significantly higher rate than they are. You know, the signs of a working system would be a system that can provide welfare adequately enough to families who are vulnerable, who are in situations that are very difficult to be able to put them in a position where they are ready to be parents or ready to be grandparents or, you know, aunts, uncles, what have you. And the reality is, is that in the long term, a suitable, safe, biological family member is always going to be less trauma for specifically infants, you know, that come into care than living with someone who has no, no biological connection. And, you know, there's just so much to say, but what I would say is people who are fostering can do so can, or, or thinking about fostering, can do so you are capable like like I want to take people by their like I want to do like the full like you know motivational speaking you are capable of loving someone's child as your own while duly supporting the fact that they are not your own and that is honestly best done through a shit ton of deconstruction work oh thank you so much for coming on genuinely um you are so uh, wildly eloquent in the way that you speak. And it's so obvious that you have such an intense passion for this and not just a passion, because I think passion without education and research and genuine um, care for accurate information, passion can be very misplaced. And it's so obvious that you've done the research and you've done, you've educated yourself and you've done the work and you've, put so much time and effort into not just fostering in a way that is ethical and beneficial for, for the child, but also making sure that you have the correct information and the statistics. And I know you prepared for this interview. I know you like put research into it and put statistics into it and it's, it's so valued and so important. And so thank you so much for the time that you put into this and for the time you put into the podcast and also just the time that you put into this in your own life. And, and I'm, I know that, um, from for the very brief amount of time that I've spent involved in foster care, the trauma and the grief is intense and the loss is intense. And so thank you for doing what you do. I know that foster parents are so greatly underappreciated and undervalued and um, they're not cared for in the way that they should be. And thank you for what you do and for um, working to educate people so that more kids can have, homes, even if it's temporary and it can be done in an ethical way because the 
the ethics of it, I know gets lost <laughs> and it gets lost in all the hubbub of the save the children. And so I, I know that from what I've heard from you today and what I've heard from you on past podcasts that I've listened to with you at, at featured, the ethics are so important to you and you make such a incredible um, stride to try to put those ethics as a priority. Um, and so thank you for all of that. And with all that being said, I want to give people a chance to be able to, um, find you and learn more about you. And, you know, if you have anything to plug, if you have any resources to plug that might be helpful, I want to give you a shot to do that and to, um, you know, plug whatever you got to plug. <laughs> Absolutely. I, um, very much appreciate the allocates, but it's hard for me to accept them. Um, it, it, you know, it's, and I think that I have to work on that in, in some ways, but in a lot of ways, I think a lot of us deconstructing also have to, but yeah. I will say that my focus is absolutely on just continuing the work. And you talk about being a logistical person as kind of like your personality trait that kind of presided over your deconstruction journey. I think that my drive for just less human suffering was a huge, huge, I guess, factor in me continuing my deconstruction work and also trying to understand foster care through the most ethical lens possible. And so I will actually give, so you had said my Instagram at the beginning of, and I'm sure that, you know, things will be tagged. And so yes, it's Ellie Coburn, but actually some resources that are not my own that are really valuable. Um, two books uh, that are incredible. Uh, one is let me, so torn apart by Dorothy Roberts and it's how the child welfare system destroys black families and how abolition can build a safer world. And then Dorothy Roberts wrote another book. I believe the one that I just read off was actually later, but her first book is one I have actually right here and it's called Shattered Bonds and it's the color of child welfare. And I know we didn't get super into talking about interracial adoption or about the disproportionate ways that um, black and brown communities are policed, but those two books were incredibly um, just important to me to understanding the true statistics and understanding kind of what we're dealing with when we're dealing with the bureaucratic system of CWS and kind of just there's not really anything um, talking about the rubric for being a better foster parent in those but as a matter of fact there's really been nothing written and maybe in the future that will be something that I consider doing or collaborating to do but Right now, I think just like absorbing the information that you read there, um, even if you're not going to be fostering, can be really, really um, important to understanding the foster system through a deconstructed lens. And then very random, not necessarily related to this. So it's weird to end on this. But I also pulled from my bookshelf, Jesus and John Wayne. Have you guys talked about this on this podcast? No. This book? No, not at all. You need to read this book right now. This book is so good. Um, and it's the, how white evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation. So good. Um, amazing. And I feel like just because I know that you told me a little bit about your, your audience, that is an incredible book as well. And for me personally, I'm a pretty abstract thinker. And so I'm able to like put what I've learned into the work that I do. Um, but again, you're not going to get a rubric on like read Jesus and John Wayne and be a better foster parent. But I think just understanding what we're up against when we talk about, you know, how to communicate with people who are being problematic in their fostering or being problematic in their adoption philosophy or whatever, that's a great resource as well. And so those are, those are kind of three books that I'm loving right now. And, um, 
lots of other books. I try to share them occasionally on my Instagram when I am posting. So amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on again. Like I said, it's always really fun for me to have people that aren't just people that I've met online, but are people that I actually have like followed and that their content or their, you know, story actually genuinely meant something to me and, and changed my perspective in some way. And then to have a separate conversation on in my safe space, being this podcast is always like so valuable and so unique and genuine. Um, so thank you so much for taking the time to, to chat and to be so eloquent and educated and gentle and passionate in the way that you speak. I really do appreciate it. I am very happy to be here and I would come back any day. You're making me want to get back into the hobby <laughs> that I pursued. But honestly, yes, on the one hand, getting on is it. But then, like I said, man, the work you put into it is not lost because that's the hard part. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, the, the logistics of it are interesting. Um, but yeah, thank you again so much for coming on. And if you ever want to come back on, we barely scratched <laughs> the surface of the conversation we wanted to have. Yes. So you are always welcome back. Um, but yeah, thank you again. I really appreciate it. Of course. Have a great one. Well, that's all the time that we have today. Thank you guys so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please write us five stars on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also follow the blog on Instagram at our new username at mindfulmindspod and visit us online at mindfulmindspod.com and at seraphinablog.com. You can also visit my TikTok at Fina underscore underscore Bina, F-I-N-A underscore underscore B-I-N-A for more deconstructing content on TikTok or at Mindful Minds Podcast for all of the podcast clips. And as always, to end our time, unclench your jaw, take a deep breath, and remember, you can always learn, you can always grow, and you can always choose to live your life in a more mindful way. I will chat with you guys in two weeks. Mm -hmm.